When I first moved to Bonner Springs, I was told by more than one person that the community here, by their perception, had been in a long spiritual famine. And that's not to say that there haven't been believers here or haven't been churches here doing things. They would have said, yes, of course there has been, but by and large, there had been a spiritual famine. Overall, the community was starving for spiritual nourishment, they said. And I hoped as we prepared to plant a church here that we could play some role in changing that. But what could we do? What could a few people do? If you remember with me from Genesis chapter 12, God had promised to Abraham and to his offspring that he would curse those who curse him and he would bless those who bless him and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And as Jacob and his little family are about to enter the empire of Egypt, right? God had told Jacob, Egypt isn't the promised land. It's not a permanent residence for you or for my people. And yet you should go there. And in the midst of a famine, God is providing for his people, right? Pharaoh himself is treating Joseph and Jacob and their family with great favor. God's people are to be a blessing to those who bless them. But what blessing could these 70 or so people be to a nation like Egypt? How will God fulfill this promise. You see, ultimately, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ, right? And we've talked about this over the weeks as we've gone through Genesis. And as we wind down, what we see is the book of Genesis is kind of bringing some of the threads to a close, though not all of them. Ultimately, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the, the offspring through which the nations are to be blessed. And we, the church, those of us who are believers, who are the true children of Abraham through faith, we share in Abraham's faith, and it's through us that God blesses the world. Now, understand, Jesus is that true blessing of Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, but it's through His church, because we are in Christ, because we are with Christ, Christ is with us, that God continues to expand His kingdom and spread that blessing in and through the world even today, blessing the world more and more deeply and more and more widely as the gospel goes forth through His church. Now, God has provided for us, particularly for proclaim here. We have, by God's providence, come to be here in this building in the middle of this city. We've been blessed with funds to make a uh, to, to be in the process of purchasing the building, and, and we're well on our way to funding a lot of the necessary repairs that need to happen. I mean, I could go on and on about how God over the last six years has just provided for Proclaim 
even before we knew proclaim was proclaimed, even before I knew any of you were, existed, right? God knew. He knew you'd be here this Sunday. And all that has me thinking as I was preparing this sermon, has me thinking, just as Jacob's family didn't look like much, I mean, to us reading the Bible, we think, Jacob, wow, you know, Joseph, wow, this is the people of God. But, but as they strolled into Egypt, they would have just been another family among other families looking like they're coming to get some food. I don't think that they would have looked like much to the average Egyptian, right? And Jacob's family was small compared to Egypt. We're small, just one little outpost in God's kingdom. Jacob's family looked forward to the day in which they would be relocated back to the promised land, and we look forward to the day in which we'll be relocated, if you will, to the promised land. And just as Egypt and the world were famine-stricken in Jacob's day, so too we live in many ways in a spiritually famine-stricken time and land, right? And God brought them to Egypt for a reason, and He will make good on His promise. He will use Jacob and He will use Joseph to bless even Egypt. Church, we don't, we don't just have a Jacob or a Joseph, do we? We have a Jesus. We have a Jesus. We have the fulfillment we have the better Jacob, the better Joseph. We have a spirit in us. We are his body. His hands and his feet in this land. That's no small reality, is it? And how can we have a heart for this Jesus? How can we have a heart for Christ and also a heart for our city right here in the heart of our city? How can we, by God's grace, become the heart of our community, pumping the life-giving blessing of the good news of Jesus Christ and all He has done for us and for His people into every nook and every cranny of our community? In light of where we are and in view of this passage, it made me ask the question, how, how can the church be a blessing in a famine-stricken land. How can the church be a blessing in the famine-stricken land? From our text, I think we can discern four principles that are critical to being a blessing in a famine-stricken land, and they're probably not the only things that we could come up with, maybe not even the only things we could come up with from this text, but it's what I've got, so I think they'll be helpful for us to consider. Principle one, remain rightly separate from the world. This is maybe on the surface counterintuitive, but I think it's fundamental to our ability to be a blessing in a famine-stricken land. You see, Abraham and his descendants were set apart by God. 
God's people were set apart. When, when God came and spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12 and said, go to a land I will show you, he was setting Abraham and his family apart from all the other peoples in the world. And their set-apartness was critical to God's presence among them. God's presence among them was essential to their being a blessing, to their being blessed and thus being able to be a blessing to others. It was the, the roots, if you will, through which fruit could grow and fall into the hands of the nations. They must be set apart. If Jacob's household had merely came into Egypt and assimilated into Egypt, they would have broken covenant with God, no longer being his people, and thus no longer being able to be a blessing to anyone. Thankfully, God promised to preserve his people. And we see in the text that God ensures this through Joseph's wise navigation of the situation, right? Not only Joseph's wise navigation of the situation, but also actually through Egypt's own beliefs and practices. And Joseph knows that not only would certain Egyptian practices violate the covenant that God's people have with God, and so God's people need to be separate for, to a certain extent from them, but that certain aspects of the, the Hebrew culture were an abomination to Egypt as well. We've seen that in previous texts where it says that Joseph or Joseph's brothers were eating at a separate table from the Egyptians. The Egyptians wouldn't eat with Hebrew people. But we also see it here in the fact that Joseph's family is shepherds, and, and to be a shepherd would be an abomination, it says, in verse 34 of chapter 46 to the Egyptians. You see, the Hebrews had different dietary practices and slaughtered food animals that the Egyptians saw as sacred. In other words, the Egyptian rejection of the Hebrews was an outflow of their being who God had actually called them to be. So while they lived alongside them, and in the case of Joseph, even led them, there were some clear religious and cultural distinctions that needed to be maintained. I'm sure that created some awkward dynamics at times. But this created an opportunity as well. It created an opportunity for them to live in the land of Goshen where they could be in Egypt but have a certain degree of separation, which was a blessing to them because, as we see in the text, it's the best of the land. It was the best of the land for them to raise their flocks in. In fact, in verse 6, we see that Pharaoh even asks for some of them to take care of his own flocks. The everyday work of God's people is of practical and tangible benefit to Pharaoh and to Egypt. Here's what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here. It's not, it's not how relevant or relatable we are, but how holy we are that makes us able to be a blessing to the world. It's not how relevant or relatable we are, 
but how holy we are that makes us able to be a blessing to the world. Second Peter says this, gives us a picture of what this looks like. He says, but you are a chosen race, speaking to the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Two things that I want, two applications I want to give you here at this point. First, we must pursue godliness. We're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We are, in fact, to be different, to look different, to do different than the world around us. Church, if you want to be a blessing in this city, in your neighborhood, in this community, you actually have to be different than this community in the ways that God calls you to be different. Not different just for different sake. That's what the world does. The, the world is what the world does. It says, hey, let, let's be different and celebrate our differentness, and then everyone ends up looking the same, right? It t- tends to be sinful. That's what they end up looking like. But we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And our city will be blessed to have people who refrain from immorality, even if some of those people enjoy the immorality for themselves. We are to conduct ourselves honorably in good deeds that glorify God, whether or not every person actually finds that deed good. Because goodness is not in the eye of the beholder, it's in the eye of God. And in his very nature and character. And our city will be blessed to have virtuous and hardworking people who excel in everyday kindnesses that make a community stronger. We are to pursue godliness, to look different. Not to sell out our godliness in order to be more relatable, to be perceived as relevant. Second application at this point is this. We should pursue boldness. We must pursue godliness, but we also must pursue boldness. Church, there will be things we do that will be an abomination to the world that God calls good. I don't know if you've realized this, Maybe you haven't turned on the TV or the internet or the news or the Twitter or whatever, but there will be things that God calls good that the world will look at and call an abomination. Be prepared for it. And when you stand for what is right, they will look at you and they will call you an abomination. Be prepared for it. You, we will know. And one day we will know wisdom by its fruit. And we can rest assured that though 
we're called an abomination, God will vindicate his people. They will, on some points, speak against you as evildoers, 2 Peter says. And yet we are holy. We are set apart. We are sojourners in this cursed and famine-stricken land, yet in it we proclaim God's excellencies, it says. And our city will be blessed to hear and to see God's truth, whether they immediately realize it or not. whether everyone realizes it or not. Friends, pursue godliness, pursue boldness. Live as people rightly separated in the land. Principle two, receiving isn't necessarily bad, but giving is better. I know that's long. It's a lot to write down. I try to keep them short, but I couldn't shorten this one anymore. Receiving isn't necessarily bad, but giving is better. So Joseph, he coaches his brothers on what to say before they go to Pharaoh. Do you notice this? Verse 40, uh, chapter 46, verse 34, you shall say, when Pharaoh calls you in, you shall say, he says. But then if we, when it comes down to it in verse 5, what do we notice? We see that Joseph wisely, he's a pretty smart guy, he wisely picks only five of his brothers to go before Pharaoh. I'm guessing Simeon and Levi are not one of those five, right? They don't have a very good track record when it comes to negotiations with, you know, kings of cities and such. If you don't remember, just look back a couple chapters. They say more or less what Joseph tells them to say. In verse 5 and 6, Pharaoh says to Joseph, settle. Settle them in the best of the land, in, in Goshen, and, and, I've got, uh, and if you've got anyone really good, take care of my, let them take care of my flocks. Pharaoh's seen how God works through Joseph, and he expects that God will continue to work similarly through Joseph's brothers. He recognizes th- that the ways in which Joseph's uh, hard work, his integrity, his character, his faithfulness has resulted in blessing for the people of Egypt, and his expectation is that others who are also following that same God that will produce the same thing. And friends, our, our world, our community, when they see us, they ought to expect similar results. When you're hired in your job, they ought to expect, if you're a Christian, that you're going to be the most faithful, the most honest, the most true, the most hardworking of anyone that works there. They ought to have the expectation, oh, you're a Christian? You're the kind of person I want on my team. Oh, that those things would override the things that the world finds as an abomination. That the world would go, you know what, this generation coming up that the world is producing, that our country is producing, a bunch of quiet quitters or whatever that business is, a bunch of people getting on TikTok and whining because they have to work an eight-hour shift, a bunch of people that, that say whatever they want to say, even if it's not true, just to get what they want, that's not the kind of people I want to be around. That's not a blessing to This company, that's not a blessing to our community. That's not a blessing to our neighborhood. And that in comparison, 
we would shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. Friends, this isn't, what I want you to see is that this, this isn't like some sort of, we make it so overly spiritual sometimes. This is every day. This is dirt in your fingernails kind of stuff that God has called us to. This is everyday life. When you go to your job, whatever it is, and it seems like it's just another day, it's just another menial task, how you do that menial task matters to the kingdom. God is glorified in it. I'm getting off script, sorry. They're granted favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. That was God's plan. You see, receiving isn't bad, and if you receive accords, if, if what you're receiving accords with God's will, right? Receiving isn't bad if it matches God's will. For instance, it's not bad if your hard work and doing your job well and doing your job honestly gets you a raise from an unbelieving employer. Great! Praise God. They recognize your character and your hard work. But if you refuse to stand by God's word in order to get that raise, then woe to you. Woe to you. You'll receive your reward here on earth, but you will not receive the reward in heaven. What gain is it to get a raise for doing something immoral or a perk? Or if the perk gives us something that Christian ought not to participate in anyways, we ought to turn it down. Interestingly, the interaction here, it doesn't climax with Pharaoh giving the land to the people of God. No, in fact, the very center of this entire passage, the very center of this whole section is Jacob before Pharaoh in verses 7 through 10. And Joseph brings in Jacob, the patriarch, on whom God's covenant promises and blessings rest. You understand that it's upon the patriarch, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, who, who is the conduit of God's blessing to the world. And so Jacob, 130 years old, is brought in and stood up by Joseph. And I'm imagining when it says that, maybe I'm wrong here, but I'm imagining quite literally that Joseph has to help his father into the room and literally stand him up and help him to his feet as he stands before Pharaoh. And it's fine to stand before Pharaoh and rightly give honor to someone who is, has an authority on earth because God has given Pharaoh that authority. It's only because God has put Pharaoh there that Pharaoh is there. And so Jacob stands before him in respect and in honor. But look at the text. Isn't it interesting what happens here? It's not Pharaoh that blesses Jacob, but twice. Twice, just so you know what really happened, twice the Bible repeats, it's Jacob who blesses Pharaoh. It's the 130-year-old decrepit man who says, all due respect, Pharaoh, I will bless you. 
because you know not the blessing that I carry with me. You have no idea. Jacob is the, that channel of God's blessing to those who bless him and his family. And we could have thought to ourselves as we read this, well, gosh, that doesn't seem like it's Jacob's place to do that. And we might even read this and we might think, gosh, that's sort of arrogant and audacious of him to speak to someone of such high regard, maybe the most powerful man in the world at that time, to, to, to speak to him that way. And we see in his own words that Jacob doesn't do it because he thinks he himself is so great or has so much to offer in the middle of the very two, in the middle of those two blessing comments, we have this, this interesting question and answer between Pharaoh and Jacob, right? And Pharaoh says, how long are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob responds, the days of the years of my life, of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days, the years, the life of my fathers, the days of their sojourning. And we remember Jacob's life. His brother wanting to kill him, living on the run, being tricked by his father-in-law multiple times being chased down by his father-in-law, sojourning. I mean, we just remember his life, his, his, his oldest son sleeps with his wife, his next two sons kill a bunch of people and get them all in trouble. I mean, we just look at his life and we go, man, actually, there's some pretty hard times. His favorite son, when his favorite son is 17 years old, disappears and he believes him to be dead for 20 years. He's without his son. I mean, it's some hard times. His wife, his wife whom he loves, who he's supposed to marry before his father-in-law tricked him, right? She dies young. He's ripped from her. There's some hard times. And you'd think if anyone was like, man, I know that this blessing was supposed to be on me, but but I'm not so sure I'm so blessed. It'd be Jacob, whose days were few and evil. And yet, boldly, he stands on the promises of God, and he looks the most powerful man in the world in the face, and he says, I bless you, Pharaoh, with a blessing from God. Oftentimes, we don't bless others either with the truth of Christ or with the love of Christ because we don't think it's our place or we don't think we have anything worth giving to someone, right? Who am I to do that? Oftentimes, we think, I know it's, it's God's Word, but they're so much smarter than me, and so we don't share God's wisdom even though we know it's God's wisdom, or, or they, they have so much more than I have. And what, Who am I to say that they lack something because they lack Christ? Or how often do we not speak God's Word with authority because we think, oh, that person's got more worldly power than I have? Friends, that's, that's actually pride. Like, think about this. That's actually pride because you think it's about you, not God through you. Church, 
you have Christ, if you have his word, you are a conduit of something great, of something powerful, of something life-giving, of a blessing that's indescribable. Satan wants us all, he wants us to forget that all authority has been given to Jesus and that he says he'll be with us and he's told us to go. He wants us to forget that. If you have Christ, if you have the gospel, the wisdom and truth of God, the love and hope and peace of Christ, the comfort and guidance of the Spirit, it sounds, friends, like we have a whole lot of things, actually. If you have Christ, then you have what the world truly needs. So long as you hold on to those things without or rather than assimilating into the world. How can the church be a blessing in a famine-stricken land? Principle three, we've got to recognize the world's slavery to death. We need to recognize the world's enslaved to death. Verse 13 says that the famine gets even more severe in the land, even more severe in Egypt, while God's people have everything provided for them in the new land that, that they were just given for free, mind you. To, to just think about the contrast in this text between God's people being given the land for free and increasing in number, increasing in possessions. Meanwhile, what is happening to the people of Egypt? They're selling away all their possessions. They're selling away all their livestock. They're selling away their very land and lives, their persons, to survive. It paints a very different story for the Egyptians, doesn't it? Verse 14, they give all their money away, but the famine continues. Verses 15 through 17, they sell their herds, but the famine continues. Verses 18 through 19, they sell their land and lives. For grain, and what do they say? They say, they turn to Joseph and they say, Thank you, you saved our lives. They realized that they would have otherwise died. And Joseph was their only hope. And God had sent him there to do just that. And yet, while Joseph saves them in that moment, yet still they are enslaved. And friends, I want to. I want to help us to realize that there are two sides of a coin here. And historically, the church has fallen into traps when they've emphasized one to the exclusion of the other. Okay, so the first side is this, that God, God wants us to bring about social good even to a lost world. We ought to be a real and true and, and, and tangible benefit in our community, in the world in which we live. This is God's grace, not grace in the sense of salvation, but God's common grace, even to people that are not His people, through His people. God is so gracious that He may even intend to do good to people who are His enemies, who consider Him and His ways to be an abomination. Is that, I mean, just 
Sit on that for a second. God is so gracious. His grace overflows so much from the bounty of his love in his heart that he may just choose to bless and do good to people who find him to be an abomination. Because that's just how good he is. And he may do that through his people. Let me ask you, was Joseph's work somehow unspiritual because it was for a secular government? Was it less heavenly because it was so tangible? I know in our own community, just through talking to people, that even in our own city, that there are committees and planning teams and such that that have vacancies that are supposed to be filled that just are never filled because there's just no one willing to do it. There's no one willing to step up and say, hey, I'll help out there in our community, in our city. Many Christians start thinking that that sort of thing is not a Christian's place. Or if it is, or if, you, if a Christian does find themselves in that place, they need to do it with a sort of secular mindset. I'm struggling to find any place in the Bible where God's people are called to set aside their biblical worldview in any area of their life. I'm just really struggling to find that in the text. When that happens... In the Bible, when, when God's people do set aside a biblical worldview, they do set aside God's word in whatever area of their life, you know what it's called in the Bible? It's called idolatry. That's what it's called. It's called worshiping a different God. If God's word, Listen, if God's word and not our wisdom, but if God's word is our greatest resource, then why are we checking it at the door when we go to our workplaces or in our community or in our neighborhoods? Why are we checking it at the door at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning? If we believe that it is the very life that we have, why are we checking it at the door? What if Christians proclaim or otherwise started filling those holes, filling those needs? What if we were the most helpful? What if we moved onto those committees and onto those teams to act and decide in ways that are more in line with Scripture? Because we know that that will actually be a blessing to others. Because we know that God is so gracious that through his people, he would even bless people who consider him an abomination. The second side of this coin. So to remind you, the first side is that God wants to bring about social good even to a lost world. The second side of this coin is this. That, that no amount of social good changes the fact that without Christ, people are slaves to sin and death. That no amount of social good, no amount of good right here, right now, changes the fact that if they are not in Christ and they die, they will spend eternity apart from God in hell.
that no amount of social good even will overcome the wrath of God that is on them right here and right now. Romans 6, 15 and 16 says this, Do you know... Do you not know that if you, are pre- if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And some of us would be so arrogant as to say, well, I'm not presenting myself to anyone. I present myself to myself, thank you very much. Guess what? There's only two options in the Bible. It's either righteousness or unrighteousness. It's either Jesus or it's sin and death. That's it. You think you could keep yourself for yourself? You're not. You're imprisoning yourself to unrighteousness. You cannot set yourself free. Only Christ can. The greatest blessing that we can give to anyone is the good news of Jesus Christ. When we have that good news, it moves us to act in ways that will be good for our neighbors and our community and our nation. But the good news isn't you know, it's not, the good news to my neighbor isn't that they have Cody Waterman as their neighbor and he's a really nice guy. The good news is that God loves and saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they're a sinner and they're headed to hell, but faith in Christ can change all of that. Let me just stop here and say this. The Egyptians were greatly blessed by God's people and by Joseph. Joseph's wisdom and provision saved their earthly lives, but being around and benefiting from God's people is no replacement for the salvation that comes from actually being a part of God's family. And there are many people in churches today, many people who've spent Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in church and would call themselves a Christian and have called themselves Christians for a decade, two decades, five decades who've been greatly blessed by Jesus and by the wisdom of his word and by the loving community of his people. And it's truly been a benefit to their earthly lives and it's even saved them in some sense, in an earthly sense. And they may even cry out to Jesus, you have saved our lives. But they are slaves to the world and not to Christ. And on that day, they will say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. Friends, it's not enough to sit in a pew It's not enough to just read the word and go, oh, that's some good wisdom for my life that'll save me from some trouble. You must actually have faith in Jesus Christ. You must actually present yourself to Christ as slaves to Him, not to the world. You must be His people, adopted sons and daughters. Do not, do not fall short of that. Do not merely reap the earthly benefits of God's word. It's so much less than what he has for you. Ask yourself, do I merely love what Christ has done for me or do I love Christ himself? Do I merely trust God's wisdom or do I trust the Father And this brings us to principle four. Rely. 
on Jesus. Twice, verses 11 and 12, verses 27 and 28, we see Joseph provided everything they needed. They gain in possessions and are fruitful and they multiply. And, and listen, that phrase, fruitful, multiply, it, it's the echoes of the promises of God, the commands of God from Genesis 1, 26 and 28, to be fruitful and multiply. And then again to Noah after the flood, to be fruitful and multiply. And then again to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that they, he, they will be fruitful and they will multiply. And we see it's happening. God's doing it. That mandate is being fulfilled, and that's the same mandate that Jesus builds on when he calls us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to go and make disciples and baptize in his name and to teach them to obey all that he's commanded of them. All that he's commanded. Jesus is the better Joseph. Jesus provides everything we need. And even in a land that's famine-stricken, even in a land where people are consistently enslaving themselves to unrighteousness, and yet we gain because Christ. Even in a land that is often wicked, the gospel has gone forth to the ends of the earth. Twelve men in one town, Jerusalem, in one part of the world, and now there are believers in thousands of people groups and languages. That the gospel of Christ has gone forth and people have been saved, and those people have have responded by bringing about social good, just, just amazing things when you think about it in the history of the, the last 2,000 years of world history. Feeding the poor and educating the uneducated and building hospitals and all sorts of other things that Christians have done. Truly, God's Word has been fruitful and multiplied. How is Jesus providing for us? It's Jesus who makes us legally holy before God, right? It's His righteousness, His righteous work, and what He did on the cross that is, that is put on our account and our sinfulness that's put on His account. It's Jesus who won the victory of, of power over the power of sin in our lives. It's Jesus who sent His Spirit to conform us continually to His likeness. It's Jesus that sets us apart. The Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What blessing could this world possibly offer us? In Christ, we've obtained an inheritance that cannot spoil or fade or perish. And so it's Jesus in Hebrews 2 that, that, that we're told partook in human life in order to defeat the devil by his own death. And that's to deliver us from slavery to the fear of death. He's freed us to pursue better things, to pursue true and abundant life, not merely avoid biological death. Think about that. These Egyptians selling their lives 
to just stay alive. How often do we sell true life, the life that we have in Christ, for just merely existing in this world? Amos talks about, in the book of Amos, the prophet Amos, he talks about there being a famine in the land. Quote, not a famine of bread, but of hearing the words of the Lord. My prayer has been, as, as we started proclaiming, as we continued to move here to this building, and as we look to purchase it, my prayer has been that that we'd help see that change, that there would not be a famine in the land, that there would not be a famine of God's word. Now you might say, Cody, well, look look how small our, our church is. Look how, look how small our budget is. Look how much work needs to be done in, in our, in our, on our building, let alone in, in the city. I mean, Look how many issues there are that we're facing. Look at, look at all the resistance to Christ and to Christianity, even in our society at large. Here's what I'd say. You're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the wrong things. Jesus provides all we need in a famine-stricken world. And if we have Christ... Our sovereign God, we have what we need to do the task that God has put before us. How many similar excuses might Joseph had said to himself when he was in the pit? But when God, by his sovereign hand, lifted Joseph out of the pit, the famine-stricken land was blessed. And when God, by his sovereign hand, lifted Jesus from the grave, the famine-stricken world was blessed. And I don't know what God's sovereign plan is for Proclaim. I don't know what his sovereign plan is in Bonner Springs. But I know that when he decides to stretch out his hand, nothing can stand in the way. And even if our days be few and evil, yet even still we are a conduit for the blessings of an eternal God. And we can do that. So I'll end with these words from Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Let's pray.